I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. In this episode, Raising a Black Boy Not to Be Afraid. Isn't that nice? So one evening last spring, my son packed his backpack for school the next day inside. Mom, it's weird walking around in my school, he said. His somber tone made me afraid of what would come next. Confessions of bullying, peer pressure, or as had been reported about the eighth graders witnessing kids drinking or making out near the campus. Why? I asked, trying to sound calm. All the white people move away from me when I'm walking to school. The white women grab their bags across the street. The only people who say hi are black women pushing strollers with white children in them. That was Nicole Fleetwood, reading from her essay, Raising a Black Boy Not to Be Afraid. It's about the casual street violence of whiteness. Nicole is an associate professor at Rutgers University, and the essay that she wrote was about an observation her son made and an experience he'd had while walking to school alone in New York City. The essay is beautiful and moving. You know, Nicole and I both have sons, and this conversation was really cathartic for me. You know, I think it's a really important conversation because we don't often talk about what it feels like to be a young black boy in America, where your very presence may be considered a threat, even when you're just a little kid. This essay is so beautiful because it explores what's in the hearts and minds of these young boys. And it's a conversation that I will never forget. Here is my conversation with Nicole Fleetwood. You said that you were nervous because he had a somber tone and you didn't know what was coming next. What did you anticipate him saying? What were you afraid of? Jen, that is such a good question because to be honest, I really, I had no idea what was going to come out of his mouth. Um, I thought it would, was maybe him like experimenting in ways that could scare me, like skipping school, making out with girls at 12, um, drinking, but he's actually not that kind of kid, if you know him. So it was like a big question mark in my head. Like, what is he about to say? Um, because he's a pretty safe and cautious person. At that point, he was still very into, you know, kind of pleasing adults. You know, I'm not sure if you've mentioned the demographics of your neighborhood, but had you ever thought about what his interactions with white people might be? And I ask this because if you've been a black child, you have some sense of what those experiences might might be like, right? So has you actually considered what those interactions might be for him before this happened? So um, the way he opened up that conversation, I didn't think it was going to be about race. I thought it was going to be more about adolescent issues around identity, risk-taking, feeling comfortable with himself. Um, I have thought about his experience of race at school in part because we live, you know, because of the moment we live in and the kind of constant struggle of anti-blackness and how do we raise children to be joyful and have confidence in a world that creates all kinds of ways of demeaning black people. So that's always, you know, partly it's my scholarship too, right? It's, It's what I do for work. It's how I live my life. So it's always in the back of my mind. I was just completely blown away. I have to say that. I was like, kind of in shock because it was not what I was. I didn't think that was the conversation we were about to have. Yeah. And, you know, for me personally, and you and I talked a bit about this offline, 
you know, because I have a son too, you know, and I didn't realize how naive I was about this until I started to see his reactions to the world, right? And I'm thinking specifically about this study. There's a study that shows that, you know, starting at around age five or six, people begin to view black boys as less innocent in comparison to their white peers, right? And you know, one of the things that I love about the opening of this essay is that it reveals one of the most interesting things I think about being a parent, you know, and that's that moment when you break away from your child and they become an independent person within the world, away from you, you know, and, and watching how they interact with the world without you as their interpreter, you know, and as their shield, you know, and these are really, really interesting moments where they observe something, especially something about human behavior that you may have completely missed. And I think that's probably one of the most beautiful and poetic parts about being a parent. But it can also be pretty, pretty painful. Well, I, well, I say to myself, often joking, um, but in my mind, I was, I was a much better parent before I had a child. <laughs> uh, we all are. Yeah. Yeah. For everyone. It's like, oh my gosh, this is so, you know, and it is constant. Like we as parents are constantly learning. So I think for me, it was a moment of, I think, him sharing his growing awareness of how the world treats black boys. And it was my having to acknowledge how little control I have over that. And I think before we had this conversation, and, and it was a conversation that was a really quiet conversation. I also have to say that it was like he he was elongating his words as he was saying them, like he was thinking and really articulate, like deliberately articulating his words, like trying to figure out how to vocalize this really awkward experience that he has. Uh, most of it's not spoken, right? Around people moving away, moving their bodies away from him. He was saying this really quietly to me. And he was also like, kind of like in a hallway. He wasn't like looking at me as he was telling me this. And it was almost like a monologue. Um, you know, but we did have an exchange around it. And for me, it was like, wow, he is his own person in the world. And he has this like sense of the world and how the world is treating him, even if he doesn't have the tools at 12 year old to like, you know, to, he's developing the tools. Right. I think this is one of the issues that keep coming up around raising black children and black how black children are treated in public space is that they're expected to grow up a lot faster than non-Black children because they are they have these litany of experiences that are, you know, it's like constantly coming of age to the levels of kind of cruelty around race in, in this country. And, you know, we can, I don't know if you followed the story, this kind of viral story that happened recently in a, a New York deli where a, a white woman accused a nine-year-old child of sexual assault. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was, <laughs> yeah. I was just reading that about that again for the third time because I'm just <laughs> preoccupied by that story. Right. And that this child, this nine year old has to even kind of figure out what sexual assault means. Right. Like, I'm, I'm not saying that he's co completely clueless to that, but just like that's that that in itself, that concept is quite, you know, like something that as a child, 
how do you how do you even understand what's happening right around that right and your relationship to the body and and stuff so i think that for me it was like wow he was able to put into words a lot of nuances of what it means to grow up in a black boy's body and be perceived not through the love and affection that he's experienced most of his life being supervised by his parents his family and even in school settings i mean we've been pretty fortunate to have them generally in school settings that have been really loving. I mean, I I mentioned this kind of experience that he had at Montessori school. After that, his father and I have been very deliberate, like really intentional about what kind of schools he's in and what kind of interactions he's having in school and with teachers. Um, So we've been fortunate to have teachers who have a racial consciousness, a real commitment to, to children. But there's these spaces, right, where there's no adult around who's maybe who has their best interest in mind. I think that was his first time realizing, oh, many adults I interact with on a day-to-day basis, they could not only maybe do they, could they care less about me, they, in fact, they, they would prefer that I not be here, that I not, you know, walk on these streets on my way to school. Um, and it was just, it was shocking. I, I, I don't mean it's not naive. I think I was also just moved by his ability to talk about it with such nuance. You know, something you said just struck me, um, something that I hadn't actually planned to talk about um, or ask you about, but it's about their awareness of people not wanting them around, right? Children's awareness of people who don't want them around. You know, my son, he's actually seven now, but for him, that awareness came at a really young age. He was about six, right? Or even younger. Um, And I want to backtrack for a second and comment on your son's school setting and point out, you know, how fortunate you are to have that environment because, of course, disparities in school disciplines for black boys is is huge, right? There's a huge gap in disparity. Huge. So, you know, I think you're very lucky to have not had those experiences in school already because, you know, we have. And, you know, I remember when he was about six years old, my son was about six years old, you know, him saying, you know, on the way to school about one of his teachers you know, I think that you'd be happier if I were not here. And hearing that from someone so small, from this little body and the sadness in his voice, you know, he was barely six, actually. He was barely six. And it was heartbreaking. Wow. At six? Six years old. You know, and I mean, schools are such harsh places where I think for black boys and black girls. And I, what I want to say is that even though I say we've been fortunate with the teachers we have, my son all around him sees things happening in schools that are for him shocking. I mean, he's partly, I think he's been labeled a good kid, but his status as a good kid often, I think inside the school is used to then you know, he's held up in, in a way that he doesn't like to be held up as an example that other students should follow. Right. Yeah. Um, a couple of friends and black male friends who are really vocal and, and very assertive around their own sense of racial consciousness. One is just a brilliant kid who was in a kind of gifted program with my son and got some opportunity to get like a free free tuition at one of the elite private schools here in New York. And not one teacher, this is a, in his elementary, not one teacher in that school, that most of the teachers were white, would write a letter of recommendation for him. So his parents had to turn down that scholarship. Well, that's that's heartbreaking. Not one. Because he was such a, he was so vocal, vocal about 
things that he thought were unfair in school or, you know, exclusions of black history from class. And, and this, at, you know, the fourth, fifth grade. You know, why of all things would that be punished? Right. You know, he has this heightened sense of consciousness around race and justice. You know, and I mean, if anything, that's not only a testament to his giftedness, but to his emotional intelligence, you know, to punish him for that and to deny him an opportunity to grow further because his questioning makes you uncomfortable. You know, that's that's crazy. It's insane. And it's kind of cruel. So and again, it's like fear. Right. So the fear of black children. And I think often adults who are interact, who are, I would should, should say many non-black adults who interact with black children in educational settings, through social services, I would even say through some athletic programs who live their lives in a way to avoid general interactions with black people by neighborhood choice, by their social life, by all kinds of things. I don't think they're even aware of the fear. I don't think they're conscious of the fear that they bring into those relationships and how that fear often governs what happens. When I started reading your essay and when you described him and the way that he described what he was experiencing and what he was observing, you know, maybe I'm projecting, but I just got the sense that he may have felt a sense of betrayal a sense of betrayal in noticing these people move away from him, especially in the context of him being a model student, right? And I think there's some irony in that. You know, so in school, in the context where he can be judged by his schoolwork, you know, by him turning in his homework or how well he pays attention in class, and the response to him is, you know, supportive and warm because he's behaving in a way that they deem to be non-challenging and non-threatening. And, you know, just because he's a good student. But then to contrast that with how he's treated on his way to school by people who aren't aware that he's, you know, in the gifted program or that he's a model student, to them, none of that matters, right? What matters is his skin color. That's what they see. Right, right. I think that that for him, that was the, I think it was the profound sense of like, oh, um, this idea of character building and doing well in school, um, how far does this really go, right? In terms of like determining my life outcomes. You know, his dad often says, you don't have to try to be like so good, you know, kind of encouraging him to like, it's okay to make mistakes, sometimes get in trouble and things like that. Because his father's fear is that if he tries to walk too straight of a line in a very anti-Black world, right, that he'll never have space to actually find out who he is and, and to explore if he's super rule bound, right? So it's also like, which kids get the right to break rules and be okay, Right. Like his just like trying to do well and do the right thing is enough to kind of endanger him or make him feel like unwelcome on his way to school and be just considered a kid doing those things. I'm not saying that we don't have, you know, black children having fun in space, but like the way that that gets interpreted within kind of a dominant white culture is often as unruly, as unparented as all these other things. Right. So it's a, for, I think there's a fine line or not even a fine line. I think it's just like a really complex negotiation around like being able to be joyful, playful, unworried, unburdened by all these attitudes and ideas that are thrown on your body. My son is very self-composed. That's for him not, I don't think so much about performing for white or black or adults, but he has a lot of integrity and sense of self, right? So I think that for him is it's also jarring when he sees people act unkind or just be rude or like he'll 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 even say sometimes under his breath, savages when we see <laughs> So I think part of it is his own growing sense of self. 
And then seeing people who are behaving in what he would consider an uncivil way, right? Like these adults who are treating him in uncivil ways. And for him, I think there was also a, a bit of a critique. It's, it's just a lament. It's pain. It's heartbreaking for him. But it's also like a critique that these people are treating him that way. I was working with Garnett Cardigan on my essay. Garnett is a wonderful essayist and a teacher um, who wrote an article, an essay called um, Walking While Black. And I shared my earlier draft of this essay with him. And it really, it spoke to a lot of the things that he thinks about. Like he does work through essay writing and through workshops and lecturing about race and and cities and just like the space of cities and how people occupy that space. And so it was really great working with him on this essay and also like his own kind of coming of age story about around walking in these different cities from Jamaica to the U.S. and how his experience as a black man or a black teen changes from like Jamaica to New Orleans to New York. Um, I say that to say part of what I wanted to get at is what it feels like to come of age, like literally like to go through puberty and to be kind of trying to develop a sense of self and a sense of independence and learn new things about yourself as your body is changing and be confronted by day in and day out racism. Even if his dad had that same journey, was kind of dealing with the same kind of people responding to them, they they have a kind of accumulation of experiences and perhaps strategies for dealing with that. But I think being in puberty, being in middle school is a particular, it's a really special time in some ways a vulnerable time, but it's also special in that like, I think there's some soul searching and learning about the self that happens during that time that perhaps doesn't happen in other stages of our life, right? Like as we're literally, our body is like, he's grown six inches in a year. His sense of himself has changed so much as he's grown. Yeah. You know, I read that that essay and it's it's titled Walking While Black and by your friend Garnett. And, um, you know, just the title in it itself, when I was reading that, it kind of, you know, made my chest tighten because essentially it's about him loving to walk, walk through his neighborhood. Right. And walking the streets of, you know, where, wherever he was living. I think he grew up in, in Jamaica and then went to school in New Orleans. Right. But, you know, the fact that something so simple, you know, and something so, you know, normal and innocent and human just walking right, would, you know, elicit all of these emotions and all of this fear and this thought, you know? And, you know, and it just makes me think about the history of surveilling and policing Black people who are walking. The experience of Black people in the Americas has been one where they're walking, their movement has been constantly surveilled in attempts to control and to manage their mobility. Yeah. You know, you talk about the fear and, you know, having someone who has had that experience, you know, a, a person who's an adult now who's had the experiences that your son is having and to help them, you know, come up with strategies and kind of navigate. And that kind of reminded me of something that happened with us because, you know, like I've kind of alluded to, you know, we didn't have a great year in school last year. And, and I think one of the things that all parents look forward to is summer, right? You know, summer because you'll have, you know, some relief from all of that right. stress, you know, what's going to happen in school. So, you know, last summer, um, you know, both myself and my son, we really look forward to summer camp, right? So the first day we go to summer camp and I, I had this sense of dread in my chest that I hadn't actually thought about before. I hadn't actually, you know, tuned into before. We go into the main room where they're checking in all the, the new students, right? Or the, the campers. 
And I see this black man who's a camp counselor. And he turns around, he looks at my son and he says, you know, you know, hello, little man. And he gives him a fist bump. I went back to my car and I just cried because I knew that there was going to be someone there with him all summer to be there as a translator for other people about, you know, his behavior and who, you know, who would be there for him. And I felt that, you know, okay, we'll have a few months where he'll be fine. And I don't have to worry so much. And where he's seen, right? I mean, where he's seen as a person and not just as a skin color or, you know, as a black boy, right? Like to, I think as a parent, when you, when you see others recognize your child for who they are as a child, their own individuality, their shortcomings, their, who they are as a complex person, especially as a parent of a black child, it is so moving, right? To have people recognize your child. And, and, and I mean, so I'm like, I'm touched hearing you share that because I, I've, I've had that experience where someone has recognized him and given him a lot of love and affection. And it's transformed him. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about this experience was whether you'd had conversations with any of the white mothers in your group or in your school, you know, because I've always been curious about this and whether they were aware of the fact that one of the primary things that differentiates our parental fears, all mothers, you know, all parents carry fears around, you know, for their children. But this is unique. This is a this is a type of fear that is unique to mothers of black and brown children. And I say mothers of black and brown children because there are some mothers, you know, parents of, you know, black and brown children who are not black and brown themselves, right? But one of the things that I think that they often take for granted is the amount of fear that we carry for our children around this issue, this additional burden that, you know, they don't have to carry, you know, for me, and this may be hyperbolic, but for me, the stories and experiences of, you know, boys like Tamir Rice or even Emmett Till, you know, they live in my body all the time. Even if I'm not consciously thinking of those stories, yes. uh-huh. those stories are imprinted on me, you know, and I carry them and I carry that fear with me all the time, you know, even if I'm not conscious of it. It's an additional burden beyond, you know, will my child get good grades or will he be bullied or, you know, school shootings, you know, now we have to worry about school shootings, right? But this additional burden of how will racism affect my child today? You know, will racism get my child killed even? It's not something that other parents have to think about. And it's, you know, it's a hell of a burden. Jen, one of the things I would like to share with you is about writing this piece. I wrote it over about a year and a half. After my son initially told me about these experiences, I started jotting it down. And I did reach out to friends and I, and I kind of said verbatim, I kind of wrote friends letters and emails and I said verbatim what he said. And, you know, and they were all just so upset because they know him and they love him. And most of them were black or people of color. There were a few white people, but they all are really thoughtful and knowledgeable around, around issues around race. You know, many of them are professors, but they all felt taken aback. Am I being naive? You know, like, I can't believe this is happening to him already. So I think there is something about our experience of race, even though we're really familiar with the pains of it, when it occurs, it still feels, it's, it's so wounding, it feels new, and it kind of takes us, it shocks us. 
One of my students told me about asking for the time at a train station. His phone had died and he wanted to make sure he was, and he asked a man who was standing in front of him and the man didn't respond. And he said, excuse me, sir, um, do you mind telling me the time? And the man said, I heard you the first time in word. You know, and we know that people say that all the time, but like when it happens, it's still like, <gasps> I mean, I think that's part of the brutality of racism. It hurts no matter how many times this happened, it hurts. It's wounding. It's, you know, which is why I love what Claudia Rankine says in The Condition of Life, uh, of Black Life is One of Mourning, where she says, we mourn in real time. You know, people talk about delayed mourning or mourning years later when something terrible happens. No, we're mourning as we're living. I want to talk a bit about the fear, right? Because, you know, like I alluded to earlier, that I think one of the things, one of the burdens that, you know, mothers of white children don't have necessarily or don't realize is that how much we fear their fear, because their fear sometimes mm -hmm. it means death for right, our children. children. Like when you, you know, to think in the worst terms, mm -hmm. like Tamir Rice and, and Emmett Till. And I had, you know, to book in that experience mm -hmm. I was talking about with, you know, my kids year in school. And at the beginning of the school year, he was just five, right? Um, we had a summer play date in the park with, you know, a bunch of mothers. And I don't live in a very diverse city. You know, one mother that I'd known for a couple of years, and she'd known my family for a few years, you know, she was asking my son, you know, how his summer had been. And again, he was just five years old. And he was talking about what a great time he had at the water park with his other friends. And they had their guns and they were shooting each other at the water park. And, you know, and I looked over and she was clutching her chest as if there was like these imaginary pearls there. And she was like, oh, my, not a real gun. <laughs> and I was so mm -hmm. angry and just mm -hmm. dumbfounded by yeah. the absurdity of that. Yeah. Right. Like, it's just uh -huh. he was talking about a water park. Of course, there are water guns. He he's five. Wow. And she'd known us for years. Wow. And it, and I remember I took several photos of him that day because he, he had a new hat. He was becoming self-conscious and he wanted to look at himself, you know, in his new hat. And the hat said, you know, something like, I love ice cream. <laughs> You know, and I just thought, you know, how, and it, it was just so, there was so much clarity in that moment for me about how we see our children and how they often see our children. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think this, I think this is the day in, day out of Black parenting. Right? I mean, I think it is the day in, day out of Black parenting. And also people who are like, involved in forms of community parenting. I think for my son, um, part of what's, what, what was alarming for him with seeing, oh, this is how white people think about Black children, is we have been basically in the same neighborhood for his life. And he walks a few blocks where, on his way to the subway, where so many people recognize him. And they say hi. Even the crossing guard, like that level of kind of community engagement and in involvement with primarily black and Latino children who are going to and from school and then moving into just a mile away, maybe a mile and a half away, but a very different demographic. And where that demographic actually ha also has a sense of community and a sense of parenting, but it's one that is about community parenting and looking out primarily for white children. And it might not be to the same level of involvement. I am convinced that the people who live in the neighborhoods around the school have an idea of community and neighborhood, but it's one where my son stands out. Can you talk a bit about that? Because, 
You mentioned in the essay, you, you talk about the climate in the school district, right? And there was something that happened a few years ago where they were making some changes to the admissions policy of a certain school, right? And they wanted to make the school district more diverse. And you, you kind of describe what happened there. Can you talk a bit about that? Right. So that was even, I mean, that was like last spring. And so the district is one of the most segregated districts in New York City, which has some of the most segregated schools in the country. I should say racially segregated and class segregated. These uh, admissions process that involves a bit of school choice. The school choice process is one that actually just heightened segregation where parents with money, largely white and some Asian parents will do a lot of test prep for children to do well on certain admissions tests or state tests that will make it easier for them to get into the schools that are the choicest schools. So um, there's been a group of progressive educators trying to shake that up and saying that all of these schools in a district also have to accept certain students who don't test so well or something like this. And the parents, primarily white parents on the Upper West Side, were the ones who were protesting this. And not all of them, but there was definitely a core and very vocal group completely opposed to this and saw that it was basically giving, quote, undeserving children spots in better public schools. So there's so much in it that I find problematic. One is the idea of what is public and what's the public school. And I don't think public schools are schools that should be so selecting that they're that they're not educating the public. Right. So that they're actually just like choosing the students who have the highest test scores. And the test scores are also a measure of class status. Some progressive educators were really trying to change that the admissions process to create more diversity in all the schools. But the opposition of vocal and affluent white parents, it was so palpable and so loud and so offensive, actually, that some of the principals said this is offensive because you're saying that children from under-resourced schools or, or neighborhoods that don't have as much money don't deserve to be in the best public schools in New York City and just call them out on that level of, you know, class-based and race-based exclusion. So this is part of, the, I think, the environment also that he's experiencing as parents see kids of color moving, who they think don't belong in the neighborhood, moving into these neighborhoods to go to school. So it also is this kind of idea, this ideology that's connected to anti-Blackness. And it's that Black people aren't qualified and they don't deserve to be at the choicest institutions. You know, I think one of the more interesting moments was when you describe one of the mothers at a meeting about this change to make the schools more diverse. And, you know, this mother that you described, she's screaming and she's saying, you know, how could you do this to my child? You know, she's only 11. Right. And the absurdity of the idea that the mere existence of black and brown children would lessen their educational experience to the degree that she thinks the entire school experience is ruined or tainted and that, you know, it, it will no longer have value. Not to mention the fact that, you know, these are public schools and, you know, these parents have essentially paid for better test scores to get their kids into these schools. You know, so who's to say without the money poured into test prep that these kids would be at the same level as the kids that they're trying exactly. to keep out? I, I totally agree with you. I, exactly. I mean, it's also that belief that their children deserve the spots in the best schools as a default. It's an unquestioned assumption that, of course, our children deserve the best spot in the best schools. Because one of the things that's been coming out, I think, that the quote, best or better schools are often the schools where with the wealthiest parents who 
put a ton of money into the PTA. And so they're basically subsidizing public school with thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of of extra services and programs and academic enrichment. And some schools have yoga and mindfulness programs. And they're in the schools with the most affluent kids. You know, the outcomes mirror the kind of resources that are going into it. But a lot of these resources are being subsidized by wealthy parents. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. You know, and I really want to keep the focus on your essay, but you know, you've got me thinking about so much, you know, especially about the school experience because it's such a large part of their lives and in our lives, you know, especially how they're perceived and how they interact with teachers and school staff. You know, one of the things that was so heartbreaking for me in our experience, um, and this is a hard thing for me to admit, you know, and one that I had to face and, and change, frankly. But I noticed that because of my expectations of how my son might be perceived by his teachers, that I started to change my behavior towards him. You know, I had higher expectations of his behavior out of fear of the reaction from other people, that their reactions might be worse. But, you know, Doing that does not allow these kids to be just kids, right? And to be who they are, you know, and it's not the kids. It's not their fault. It's the people who are unfairly judging them. You know, so as soon as I recognized that in myself, you know, I just did a hard pivot. I did not want the relationship with my child to be tainted by the unfair and prejudicial treatment from other people. That's so, um, it's just here, it's intense for me to hear you say that. I think parenting is a series of tiny heartbreaks. I don't mean to sound pessimistic, but right, like it's like (laughs) it's constantly like you're like, you know. (laughs) I mean, of course, there's lots of great things that come out of it, and you know, you love your child, but there's so many heartbreaks in parenting. It's also like deeply psychological, these like really complex psychological relationships that we're having with our child, with people who are interacting with their child. The entanglements are so intense and I think, and they're so all consuming. That's a, like parenting is all consuming, you know. You know, so back to your essay, because the ending is, is really beautiful. Um, you describe this moment where the two of you were walking home from school And you spotted a police officer who had stopped a black man and he was questioning him. And your son stopped until he was assured that, you know, this man was was safe, that the black man was safe. He was, you know, watching guard in a sense, you know, and, you know, he's still a child. You know, but the fact that he would be burdened with those worries and that he has such a sense of, you know, awareness and responsibility for others, it's really sad and poetic you know, can you talk a bit about that moment? Thank you. I mean, I was I was trying to get at the inevitability of that. Like he's growing and, you know, and I want him to live a long, healthy, happy, amazing life. And his growing is also with our shared awareness that he's growing in a world where there's a lot at stake and a lot of ways that things could go very wrong for a black boy. That's the world he's growing into, a world where there are so many, I don't want to use the word pitfalls, but just so many ways that things could go terribly wrong for a Black boy or Black man. The recent murder in Dallas of a Black man in his home uh, by a white police officer who said she mistook, she thought she was walking into her own apartment, a white woman, and she killed this Black man. And there was a New York Times profile about it. And it was about how the parents had raised him. 
to avoid encounters with the police. They were so deliberate about raising this child to not have confrontations or to have as little interaction as possible with the police. And he's killed in his home by a police officer. So like, that's the world that my son is coming of age in and not just my son, but millions of others. Right. And that is again, like Claudia Rankine saying that we mourn in real time, but we also have created these amazing strategies of surviving. And I do think part of it is like really believing in the power of like public love and recognition. The, the thing that keeps me from going completely insane is like believing that there are people along the way, along the, his route, who do love him, who do love the idea of children, who love children broadly, who care. I mean, I think we can all participate in making the world like just like, you know, I don't mean it in a in, as a Pollyanna at all. It is like a deliberate everyday practice that like that's somebody's child on the street. I want to acknowledge that child if that child needs help with someone's loss. Right? You know what I mean? Just like that kind of collective care that we all have to participate in it. Yeah. Well, it's not Pollyanna at all. It's actually, you know, on some levels, it's self-preservation. Yeah. We have to like have some ethics and practices of collective care. And I think especially around children, especially around children. So what impact has your writing and sharing this essay, what impact has it had on yourself, on your son, on your dynamics with your community between your son and, you know, his relationship to the community? But it's been really, I think, rewarding. I've gotten a lot of really powerful messages from people. And I also want to tell you this. I shared the essay with the administrators and faculty at his school. And I said he wanted to remain anonymous. And I've gotten incredibly moving messages. So a lot of educators have actually been reposting and sharing this. You know, I thought about it as a parent, but I was like, oh, yeah, of course this would speak really to educators too, because it's thinking about what a child brings into the room before they even get to the room, right? Jen, I, I must tell you, and is that writing it, so I wrote over like a year and a half, and I just like started up just trying to get some feedback from friends about like how to handle this. And, and I did feel like a failure. I was like, I haven't set him up well for this. And they felt as helpless as I did around it. I mean, they gave me some thought. They mirrored my sense of helplessness and, and of, of mourning. And so I put it down and I would go back to it. When his Spanish teacher shared that poem with me during a parent-teacher meeting, I said to my son, I've been trying to write about this too. And he's like, oh, you have? And he was really curious. But then when I sat down this summer, I was like, I'm going to do this this summer. I'm just going to finish this because I, I didn't want to just internalize it. So I started to like, okay, I'm going to finish this essay and I'm going to share it. And my biggest fear was that it would feel wounding to my son. And I, I would cry as I was writing it. And I am not generally someone who cries a lot, but I was, every time I would sit down for a writing session, when I'd stop, I would be crying, like really, really, really upset. And just all the fear that I have for him moving forward would come out on the pages for me. And also my desire to not like hover or to like, you know, like to also give him space to have his own experiences. Right. And then when I felt ready to share it with him, I read it to him like a bedtime story. And, and I said, I want to read something to you. And I didn't tell him what I was going to read. Um, and I read it. And then when I finished, he got out of bed and he gave me a hug. He said, mom, I love you. Thank you for writing it. And his only request was that I didn't use his name, but I could tell it was so important for him to have 
his experience legitimate it. Yeah. Why did you fear that it would be wounding to him? I just felt like it would make him, because he's such a self-conscious teen, early teen. He doesn't like too much. Uh, I felt like he doesn't like too much of a spotlight on him. He doesn't like too much attention. You know, it's like this kind of weird, like, just give me space to kind of like figure out who I am. And it's, you know, this a really tender experience that he had of feeling, basically feeling day in, day out rejection. Yeah, I was afraid that he would feel like it was reproducing that the, the feelings, the pain instead of what I wanted it to be, which is like a, a hug, like uh, like le- letting him know how much I love him and how I'm available to support him in any way I can. And we both know that there are limits to how much I can support him. You know, I want to talk a bit about the poem that your your son wrote, because he wrote this really beautiful poem, you know, describing his experience and, you know, describing his feeling of vulnerability around race and how people perceived him. And it was something that he wrote, you know, for a Spanish class. So can you talk a bit about this poem? There was a part in the poem where he basically does have this question that like, kind of like, almost like, when will this end? Will this ever, will I ever, you know, will I ever be seen other than within this kind of framework where people aren't really seeing me and where he feels like he's walking towards a wall. And so it was a very haunting the way, the way he ended it. He was not uplifting. It was not like, let me find a way of kind of wrapping this up and going back to just like a sense of self. It's a, it's just like a sense of self growing in peril because of anti-blackness. He writes this poem in Spanish about identity that um, his Spanish teacher assigned. And she told me she was floored by what my son wrote. She did not expect it to be as nuanced and, you know, and getting into some really complex issues around race. Um, and his own developing sense of identity as an individual and his own identity, group identity as a black boy and how the antagonism between that growing sense of self and society, mainstream white society. So in one part, he writes, I am African-American, but society cannot see beyond that. Why? I do not understand. I feel like I'm walking towards a wall. I cannot go anywhere. I block negativity as a sound barrier. And this is around the time where he started to go to school always with his headphones. Yeah. So, I mean, was the, were the headphones kind of a like an emotional shield, do you think? or Definitely think it's an emotional shield. And I think it is like having almost like a kind of a soundtrack that helps him narrate his own sense of self and sense of emergence. Yeah. And I think it is literally, I think the word barrier is probably a, a really great word choice that he uses because it creates some barrier between him and the experience either of indifference or hostility on his way to school. Well, Nicole Fleetwood, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a, a beautiful conversation and a, it's a beautiful essay, really. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm a fan of what you're doing and I look forward to just hearing and seeing more. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor. Hit your subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. When you click subscribe, that's one of the most valuable things you can do for a podcast. And also, I want to hear from you. I want to hear your input and what you think about the shows. I'll put up a survey on our Facebook page. You can go there and let me know what you think. It's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.